Well, speak, speaking about the, what church is all about, that's what this whole series is about called the 29th chapter. Uh, I, I love to read. Do you? You love to read? That? A lot of you are readers. Some of you, your idea of reading is, you know, closed captioning when you, you have to be quiet on television when, you know, the baby's asleep or something, and then you have to read that. Uh, there's a problem, though, with my choice of books. I like to read not some things. I like to read everything almost. I mean, I, I love um, theology. I love to read fiction and nonfiction of all sorts and, and biographies. I'm, I'm currently reading uh, Eric Metaxas' work on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it is fabulous. It is really a fantastic book. But I, I love to read all kinds of history and, and books about current issues and church mission and church administration, uh, books about economics, politics, Christian apologetics, and romance novels. No, I'm, I'm just kidding about the romance novels. Have you ever read a series of books? I, I mean, I, I'm going to guess that not too many of you have read all 11 volumes of Will Durant's The History of Civilization. But I know you've read series of books. Some of you who really enjoy history have read series of books. Read Bruce Catton's trilogy on the Civil War years ago. I don't remember anything about it. Well, I do remember one thing, but that's about it. That's all I remember. Um, But if you've read a series of books, most likely it's been fiction. The problem with reading a series of books, like if an author has about four or five books, and the whole storyline, the storyline goes all the way through. Now, some authors will follow a character through his or her life but you don't have to read all of the books to know what's going on because each storyline is different. It's kind of a different thing, and maybe they'll refer back to a, to a circumstance that happened in another book or something. But, but really, this book is fine. It's a standalone. But sometimes you can't do that. It's like four or five books. It's the same storyline. And, you know, it's really miserable when somebody tells you about this series and you catch up to where the author is after, say, about the second book. And you are afraid that he or she will die before he, they finish the story, you know. And then you'll have to go spit on the grave. It's just a terrible thing when you do that. When, when, you, ha- when you realize, you know, we may not get the conclusion to this story. Um, if an author is really good at his or her craft, then he'll talk about stuff that happened so that you can get the story if you start in book three, but at some point you're most likely going to say, you know, this, I, I've missed too much. I need to go back and start in book one and then read the whole series again if you want to know everything that's pertinent to the story in the book that you're in. Well, this morning we're going to talk about authority, God's authority in our lives. And, and, and in addition to all of the music Carrie has, has already um, taking a shot across the bow, you know, saying that that the principles in this word are big enough to hold us up. And it's intended that we, not only that we grow, but that we grow up. We'll be talking a lot about that in in this series. And, And we're thinking about the authority that God has over our lives through His word. He claims to have authority over us. We affirm as a body... This word, God's word, as authoritative instruction to us. And we're going to be talking about that this morning. But if you really want to make sense of this 
week's message and you weren't here last week, then at some point you need to go back and listen to the message from last Sunday. Sean preached about authority, God's authority in our lives. He pointed out, firstly, that God uh, doesn't seek to prove his existence to us. He just says, I exist. I created you and you are accountable to me. He's a, he's, he, he is our creator, he is also our redeemer, and he has full authority over our lives. But in this 21st century, as it has been ever since the time of Christ, and e- even since the fall of man, we seek to evaluate and judge the word rather than the word evaluating and judging us. We fail to submit to God's authority over us because we want to rework this, we want to tweak it, we want to make it so that it ends up that we are ultimately the authority. But God continually calls us to submission and obedience. Consider just a couple of other things that Sean said last week. Every word, every truth claim that Scripture makes is true, and I ought to tremble at it. The text was Psalm, excuse me, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. And the way that I come to understand and believe that Scripture is trustworthy and authoritative is to walk in it. When you obey this word, it's affirmed every day. It's confirmed more and more that it's true. Well, we are in the early stages of this series called the 29th chapter, in which we find ourselves right in the middle of God's story. The story of Jesus Christ's church being established in God's kingdom. We Saw that in the 28 chapters of Acts that we studied this past year, and now we're living in the 29th chapter. Last year, when we, we, we looked in the book of Acts, we saw the Holy Spirit working through men and women to build Jesus' church in that time. Uh, we saw the apostles leading the way in, in establishing the church as they interpreted the Old Testament in light of the cross. You see, they got new information and they said, okay, now wait a minute. Now, some of the stuff that I've known, some of the stuff that I've been reading all along begins to make sense. Just like if you pick up a series, a fictional series in book three. And you say, wait, 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 this is a significant event. Or maybe you've been reading the whole thing and you say, wow, now it makes sense. You almost want to go back and start over reading in the light of the knowledge that you have down the road. Uh, That's what the apostles were doing with the Old Testament, interpreting the Old Testament in light of the cross and the resurrection. And we ought to do the same thing as we look at all of God's Word, recognize that the cross is, the, the shadow of the cross is over all of Scripture. In time, back in those early days in Acts, the Holy Spirit Uh, and and beyond, the Holy Spirit led the church leaders to determine which letters that the apostles had written were Scripture and which accounts of Jesus' life were worthy of being considered Scripture and and what were not. Well, we don't have apostles and prophets today to tell us about God's truth or revealing new truth to us. All the truth that we have, all the truth that we need is found in Scripture. And even though we gain new insight almost every time you come to the Word, if you come with an open heart, you gain new insight. Even so, the truth is the same as it's always been. 
authority. This book ought to have authority over our lives. And authority can be a heavy word. And almost all of us have a natural instinct to reject it. But as we submit to God's authority over our lives, we sink into peace, into purpose, into hope, and into deeply satisfying fulfillment, knowing that we are in the place of God's story that He has prepared for us. We're right in the middle of it. Your life may not seem as significant as the lives of the people that were written in here, but it is. It's every bit as significant. Now, you don't have the same kind of place or the same kind of role in God's story, but your role is just as important as anybody's role in here. You never see that, though, until you submit to authority. Our text this morning is 2 Timothy 3, the whole chapter, verses 1 to 17. Not looking at it too carefully, but, but we'll see that this chapter is all about authority. The first half of the chapter highlights man's impulse to reject authority. And then the last portion is about the benefits of submitting, submitting to God's authoritative word, even in the face of persecution in this world. As is our custom, we will stand to read this text. So if you would, please stand. And I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Now, let me say this, because I don't mention it much in this sermon. This, just say real quickly, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy. Paul was like a mentor. You're going to be hearing uh, in the next few weeks about our mentoring program or discipling program that we have in place here at at, um, or, or discipling relationships that are made possible through the ministry here at Grace. But Paul was I- indeed Timothy's mentor. And 2 Timothy was the last book that the Apostle Paul wrote. He was in prison awaiting execution that was all but certain. And so these are kind of like last words. These are some, I mean, everything that was, that was on Paul's heart was stated in... Well, I'm certainly sure not everything, but these were the things that he thought were the most important in this letter. So he's writing to Timothy, who is the teaching elder at the, at the church of Ephesus, possibly, probably the, the best church of its day, the most well-established, the best church of its day. And he says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray to various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. 
But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in, G- in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Father, it's our desire. It's our desire to be competent, to be equipped for every good work that we might play our roles well, the roles that you have designed for us in your kingdom. And Lord, we recognize that that only happens as we submit to your authority, which means submitting to the authority of the word. So we pray that you would help us to develop or to increase the love that is already existing in our hearts for the Word of God. To keep it in the proper place, knowing that it points us to you. Not to worship it, but to worship the God of the Bible and the Savior, Jesus, who is at the center of everything. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to quote the 66 books of the Bible. I've divided them up into categories on the screen. Some people would put them in different categories. um, But but just splitting them up sort of helps sometimes you get your mind around what's happening as we go through these these books. So, uh, now it could be difficult. We'll try to go a little bit slow. Look at, you'll have them up here on the screen and, and, and we'll talk about why we're doing this a little bit later. So let's begin. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. How many Revelations? 
one revelation. We'll do that again. Why? Well, we're, we're trying to answer several questions in, in this series called the, the 29th chapter. Uh, why have we organized ourselves into a church? And why this particular structure? What is the authority for functioning in the way that we do? I mean, there are so many different ways that people approach God. Why do we approach God the way that we do? What exactly do we believe the Bible teaches about this great storyline of Scripture? Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. What is our purpose here? Do we have a mission? What is our place as a church in God's story? We could have said those in different ways. Could have gone on and on and on. The things that we're trying to answer in this series. When you think about it, what we are doing here as we gather on Sunday mornings and as as we worship together, as we fellowship together as a church, and as we serve together, especially when we give up other things that we could be doing to serve, especially as we give our money in significant amounts to the church. When you think about it, what we are doing here is either supremely important or it is utterly ridiculous. But most people act as if it's neither. Or as my wife would say, neither. I don't get that. Either it's a big deal or it's ridiculous. If it's supremely important, then we need to know what we're doing and why we're doing it. Our text today is all about authority. In the first part of the chapter, people reject authority. When Paul writes about the last days, as he does in verse 1, he's talking about, he's not talking about some future time where, oh boy, it's really getting bad, Jesus must be going to come back. He's talking about all the time from Jesus until he does return, but the time between his two comings, when he came the first time and, the, and as he comes back the second time, they were living in the last days when Paul wrote that. We are living in the last days. And I think you would agree that there are a number of people in all of our churches who fit this description. Besides grace, I mean. Of course I'm not talking about Grace Community Church. Beyond these walls, though, if you were to go to any other church, this is what you would find, people like this. It's clear from their actions that that the final authority for these people is themselves. It's not a new thing for men and women to live for themselves. It's, it's so sad that there are today, just as there were in the first century, plenty of people who fit the categories listed in verses 4 and 5. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now this does not have to be some wicked, just perverted pleasure. But just... You care more about your own things and your own life and your own time schedule than you do the things of God. But then it gets serious for some people. They they have the appearance of godliness but deny the power. Paul was talking not only about members in the church. He was talking really even more specifically about teachers in the church. It just amazes me. I've said it on several occasions 
I know here, but it amazes me when I think about Philippians 1, where Paul is saying, there are some people, I'm sitting here in prison. Paul was in prison twice. The first time was where we read about in Acts, where in chapter 28, he finally got to Rome, and he sat there for a couple of years, at least before he was released. We don't know exactly how he was released. Maybe his accusers didn't show up, or maybe Caesar heard his case and said, this is ridiculous, get out of here. Uh, you're free to go. But a few years later, about three or four years later, persecution had begun to increase rapidly. Nero had gone crazy, and he was conveniently finding that there was a group of people that he could blame a lot of this on. It was Christians because they were multiplying in Rome. So he started having this great uh, persecution, and Paul was put in prison again, and this time he was um, in... Uh, the, the, the prison that is housed right there at the emperor's palace and, 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 and it was pretty much anybody that was housed there, Marmotine prison, uh, was going to be executed. So he knew it was just a matter of time. And Paul, though, when he was that first time in, in, in Philippi, he wrote and he said, you know, there are people who are preaching the gospel in such a way they preach the gospel differently than I do, and, and the way that they're doing, they think that it's going to add misery to my chains already because they're successful and I'm in prison. He said, you know what? I don't care. They're preaching the gospel. But whenever anybody, I mean, I mean these people had problems. They had emotional problems. They had just relational problems, but they were preaching the gospel. But anytime somebody started preaching a false gospel, Paul said, stop that right now. Stamp it out. Do not allow this to continue in the church. And he was saying, these people that sound so good have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. That's all they have, form, no substance. So Paul was literally saying, not only do these people not submit to God's authority, they just don't belong to him. They're not saved. Verse 6 tells us that some of those who were rejected in authority because of false teaching were women. But look, certainly there were men in this category, and, and certainly there are today. Verse 7 gives a sad commentary that they were always learning, but never arriving at the truth. There are so many voices in our day that sound strong and clear, and sometimes those voices are heard on the front bookshelves of the Christian bookstore. Really sad. When you go in a bookstore and you find a book like The Shack there, or Love Wins by Rob Bell. Look, there's heresy in those books, although Love Wins is far more dangerous than The Shack, which has significant problems about the trinity now look it it sounds good and if you're not really familiar with the with, with the deeper truths of the doctrines of scripture you're going to be easily led away and then you're going to get defensive somebody says that's heresy and i recognize anybody can say that's heresy about anything but when when the orthodox church as a whole agrees and says we got there's some real problems in this book, with this voice. You need to listen and say, in fact, say, what am I missing? This is a good opportunity 
for me to grow and to grow up. As Carrie said, and when, when, when Scripture talks about growing up, it means growing up so that we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We'll get to that passage in Ephesians 4 before too long. Janus and Jambres are two names that Paul connects to a lack of submission to Moses' authority and thus God's authority. We don't find them in the Old Testament, but Jewish tradition tells us that they were the two chief magicians in Pharaoh's court. Pharaoh's court who imitated the miracles that God allowed Moses to do. Well, they imitated the first couple of miracles. First two or three, and then after that, they didn't have the power anymore. Satan had a little bit of power, but God's power was very clearly superior. Some of the people in Pharaoh's court said, my goodness, we're going to come to ruin Moses or Pharaoh if you do not submit to this God who is leading Moses. But these two refused to submit to Yahweh and, and, and along with so many others in Egypt suffered the consequences. You, on the other hand, Timothy, have submitted to my teaching, thus to God's authority. Now, it's easy to understand how submitting to an apostle would be the same as submitting to God. But what about today? There are no apostles. You may have thought that Mike Moneypenny was an apostle. He's not. He just looks like an apostle. (laughs) And speaks authoritatively like an apostle. Um, This is the authority today. See, what the apostles said, now they said a lot more than is in here, and it was truth. But this is what God designed for us to understand. This is how God designed for us to understand what he wants us to know. He's put it all right here. And, and, if, and if what we're doing here is important, and if we take our instructions, we, our cues from Scripture, then we ought to pay close attention to Scripture. Now let's stop and, and think for just a moment about where we are exactly. I mean, why do we think Christianity is the right religion when there are so many others, and some are quite compelling, and some are quite popular and growing leaps and bounds? Why do we think what's stated in here is better than anything else? Well, I think that most of us could make, to our satisfaction, a a very logical argument for God's existence, Jesus' divinity, and salvation through Jesus' blood. And we'll be making those cases. All along, we do that all the time here. Even so, we believe because we were called by God to believe. And we believe by faith. Christianity makes so much more sense than than, than any other religion. But without question, we accept the claims of Scripture by faith. And it's silly to believe that. And then to just sort of play at it. Mess around. Another thing, though we need to say, just, just as a little bit of a... Uh, of a warning don't confuse knowledge of scripture with a relationship with the lord 
mean, there are a lot of people who know a lot about the Bible but don't know Jesus. The Pharisees, in fact, knew the Bible upside down, and yet Jesus said to them in, in John 5, 39 and 40, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The aim of Scripture is to point us to Jesus. Jesus is the center of Scripture, the center of God's story, and he's the, the center of eternity, past and present, which may be both redundant and impossible all at the same time. Jesus is just, just the center of everything. Having been warned to worship Jesus, not Scripture, we now must acknowledge that we can't know Jesus apart from Scripture. In fact, in verses 14 to 15 of our text, Paul charged Timothy to hold fast to the teachings that, that, that he, Paul, had shared with them and to continue believing the Scriptures that he had known from a child. Now, the Scriptures that he knew from a child were the Old Testament Scriptures taught to him by his mother and his grandmother. And then, while Paul never called his writings Scripture, Peter did. Peter talked about Paul's writings being, his writings in other scriptures. And, and certainly he claimed to have authority to God to speak for God to Timothy's life. Essentially, here and in other places, Paul, without saying it, is identifying his writings as scripture. That, that's important to know as we come to these next extremely important verses. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be church leaders, but, but, but truly it could be all of us that he's talking to, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. All Scripture, once again, Paul was first and foremost referring to Old Testament Scriptures, but because God's Word is is eternal, we have to accept this verse as including New Testament writings as well. God's word is is breathed out. The Holy Spirit, Spirit, the name that is synonymous with wind, is in fact the author of Scripture. We have, as D.A. Carson would say, a talking God. He talks with us and he expects us to respond to him. Notice that Paul says that Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteous living. There are two pairs of words in this verse. Teaching and reproof go together, as do correction and training. Teaching and reproof have to do with doctrine. The second pair has to do with lifestyle. Teaching sound doctrine means to discern false doctrine and rebuke or refute it whenever it is found. Most of the creeds that we have today are, the, are, are because false doctrine was being taught and the leaders of the church got together and spelled it out, said this is what we believe. But proper teaching always leads to proper behavior, or certainly it should be. Scripture is sufficient for all of life, all of doctrine and all duty, all creed and all conduct. Remember the analogy at the first of the message about reading? I, I, 
I would imagine that many of you enjoy reading an occasional biography. When, when, when you read someone's biography, it's because you've got some kind of interest in this person. Maybe you may know a lot, or maybe you just know a little about this person, and you want to know a lot more, so you jump in. And wouldn't you know that the author always begins, not with the, not with the person, but with, the, with his parents, for goodness sake. And then... He proceeds to tell us about the person's childhood. Now, some of you are all over that. You, you enjoy that. You know, oh, I'd love to know all about the heritage and the history and, you know, the childhood. What shaped it? I'm thinking, man, get to the good stuff. But the good stuff is never as meaningful without the foundation. Without the knowledge of what were the, what were the factors and the forces that shaped this person into who he or she came to be. The same is true with history. I I mean, I I couldn't begin to list the history books that I've read. I love history. Probably the most interesting work of history that I've ever read is is O Jerusalem by Larry Collins and Dominique Lapierre. It's about what happened in Israel, particularly what happened in Jerusalem when, when, when Israel became a nation, modern nation in 19. 48. And I can't tell you how many times I've recommended this book to people and I say, look, you've got to get past the first three chapters and then it reads like a novel. Now, actually, that's pretty, that's pretty short for laying a foundation. Most history books, if you read a 500-page history book, the first 100 pages are going to be tough sometimes. It's just tough sledding because a foundation is being laid. But once the action starts, ro- once the action begins and the, and, the, and the scene starts rolling, you need to know why it is all of these things are happening. It only happens when a foundation has been laid. So do you see the correlation to Scripture? Sometimes working in here is very exciting. But a lot of times it can seem tedious and unimportant. But, but, but this text says that all Scripture is God-breathed. Can I ask you a question? You don't have to raise your hand. In fact, don't raise your hand with this. How many of you have read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? I, I don't doubt that some of you would die for your beliefs. And wouldn't it be something if you were put on trial and, and, and the prosecutor and attorney says may I ask you a question you're you're willing to die for the truths in this book is that correct yes well have you ever read it well yes I've read portions of it you know I mean have you ever read it from Genesis to Revelation well I no I don't I I guess I can't say that I have no further questions it's ridiculous it's ridiculous to say that we're connected with the God of the universe And the only thing that we care about, his word, are the things that appeal to us. If, I really didn't mean to to rebuke quite like that, you know, to say, it's ridiculous. If you've never read the Bible, you're ridiculous. I didn't mean that. But if the Holy Spirit said it, you know. If you have read through the Bible... Don't feel proud about that. Ain't no big deal. But if you haven't, it's okay to feel a wee bit of shame, you know, that you haven't. Now, the younger you are, the less shame you can feel. 
by all means, make up your mind right now that you're going to read the Bible by no later than December 31st of 2012. Now, that gives you, you know, about a three or four month head start, about three months head start on reading the Bible through in a year. Um, I, I want to recommend that you read the one-year Bible in the New Living Translation. I mean, when you read the one-year Bible, you'll read the Old Testament, the New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs every day so that you don't get bogged down in Leviticus if, if it's your first time through. Because it's, it, it's easy to do that. And if you have read through the Bible ten times but you've never read through in the New Living Translation, can I challenge you to do that? Allison and I are doing that this year, and I've done it three or four times in this New Living Translation. I, I, I think maybe Allison has. But both of us say, wow, that, could you believe what we read today? That was amazing. It's not the best translation for absolute accuracy. Let me just say that. Don't base doctrine on this. Go to a, a better translation like ESV. I, I think it's the best. That's why I preach from it. But you will see things in this translation, even if you've read through 50 times that you've never seen before in a very vibrant, exciting way. I, I tell you, I, I, when I go through Scripture in a year, and this is the first year I've done it in about four or five, so it's, it's really great to be back in there. But when you go through in a year, some days, you know, you're just saying, okay, this is my responsibility and that's what I'm going to do. But I can't tell you how many times in the New Living Translation that I just, I can't stop. I mean, it's just like, a, it's like a page turner. I cannot stop reading. I, so I do. I just get, keep going and I, I get a little bit ahead. Here's the question. What are we doing here? It's either supremely important or it's ridiculous. Now, I really do recognize that we're all at different places in our lives and our, our walk with the Lord. And I, I, I really, please don't be, walk away from here thinking, well, that's, you're ridiculous, you know. And I'm, I, if that's the way you feel, I'm not judging you. I don't know anything about many of you, about how your lives go every day and how you interact with Christ and with others on a day-to-day basis. I'm not putting a list over here these are the people that do this and these are the people who don't and this and that a lot of a lot of things I don't know I don't know who gives what but I will say this if you're not giving you're not serious about this I don't know who witnesses at at work but I will say this if you're not witnessing there's something missing in your relationship with Christ it's not enough it doesn't mean enough to take that step of telling somebody else who desperately needs to hear The gospel of Jesus Christ. But wherever you are in your life, would you ask God to challenge you and to move to the next step? I imagine that all of us who are here this morning, or almost all of us, uh, would acknowledge that, yes, what we're doing here is very important. Why else would I be here? And if that's the case, we really need to know what's in here. That's why we did the unusual practice of quoting the books of the Bible and why you're going to do that again in home groups this week. We're not 
to worship this book, but once again, we don't know how to worship apart from the truths in this book. I, I started to title this message, Know Your Bible, and almost make it like a, a Sunday school class because everything we think depends on our understanding of the Word, which is in its entirety the gospel of Jesus Christ. Next Sunday, we're going to continue with our interaction with Scripture a little bit and talk about ways that we can understand this book a little better and how that uh, it, it shapes and molds us if we submit to the authority of the Word and ultimately if we submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. For now, we're going to gather at the Lord's table. And we're going to remember the central teaching of this book. God's marvelous plan of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We approach this table in faith, remembering the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood that was spilled that washes away our sins.